Hey there, welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Our interview guest today is Daniel Laddick of Seton Hall University to discuss a really interesting new scientific poll on soccer in the United States. Before we get going, you can sign up for a subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. It has all my writing, including magazine-style stories, a new one on Venezia FC, and on-site coverage of the men's and women's game. That's grantwall.com. In segment one, Chris Whittingham and I will break down the soccer news. We'll have my interview with Daniel Laddick in segment two. Let's bring in Whitty. How are you? Doing okay, sir. How are you? Doing okay. Weekend went by very quickly, but uh, that's okay, I guess. Uh, we're recording this on Sunday at 5.42 p.m. Eastern for Monday morning, and uh, lots to talk about. It was an interesting weekend. You had the FA Cup final. Let's start with that. Liverpool, again, on penalties, again, over Chelsea in a domestic cup final. We saw this before. It didn't quite go as so many rounds this time. But same result. Liverpool raises another trophy. Thoughts on the game? Well, it's interesting because Liverpool, despite uh, it was talked about on the broadcast, being the most uh, decorated English team in terms of number of trophies won, they haven't really given it uh, too much of a go in the domestic cups under Jurgen Klopp, and then they go and win both of them uh, in, in exactly the same fashion. So that that for me stands out, but also for me, the, the biggest takeaway is just what a slog this game was, particularly in extra time. It, they played out very similarly. Both teams had their chances. Both teams probably should have had one or two goals. They didn't, and then you get into an extra time period that is just haymaker for haymaker, Teams absolutely exhausted trying to gut it out. I would love to know because this is kind of a, a meme in some ways. Like the FA Cup final or the big game at Wembley where both teams are just exhausted. Like, What is it about the pitch? Was it about the stadium? Is it an adrenal thing where because it's a final you're giving more? I, I don't know why games there appear to be so tiresome. In the, and it's the same with you know promotion finals and in the second and third tiers. Like You get into the final quarter of an hour and everyone's legs are just gone. I don't know if it's because those games are played later in the year. I don't have an explanation for it, but uh, the, the penalty thing was interesting. Liverpool apparently have some penalty coach or some penalty system that they've brought in to help them with it. But either way, two penalty shootouts, and they've won two cup finals. So uh, halfway towards the quadruple, which we'll get into later, is slightly more on than it was at the start of the weekend. Yeah, just, you know, Liverpool seems to find a way, uh, this team. And it's a little frustrating for Christian Pulisic because for the third straight season, he's with a team, Chelsea, that makes the FA Cup final for the third straight season. They don't win the game and the trophy. He started this game, which you know Kai Havertz was not available. Timo Werner apparently had some sort of knock in the warm-up. And, and Pulisic was, I thought, the best attacking player for Chelsea and had some chances, put a shot wide at one point, had a really nice pass to Marcos Alonso that he kind of, Alonso kind of butchered, uh, which was unfortunate. And, you know, I know Pulisic's frustrated, but still a, a pretty good performance for him. Yeah, and there were some good moments where he picked the ball up in the middle and was driving down the middle, uh, which is a really interesting when you're looking at it, kind of scouting it from the U.S. versus Chelsea perspective. Him operating through the middle is, is a really important thing because that 
left flank is still going to be Polisic and Jedi Robinson. Robinson does so much work on his own on that left side, so Polisic's going to cut inside and play in those sorts of spaces. It'll be interesting if he can operate in those sorts of spaces when we get to the World Cup, presuming everyone's fit. But either way, I think Polisic gets a lot of attention in these games because Americans turn it on, they watch the game, and they're looking out for the number 10 for Chelsea. And I thought he had a really good game, but unfortunately not that decisive end product. And, you know, not to make it too much of a trend, but you, you're also discussing, you know, Zach Steffen going out with Manchester City in the semifinal and not playing well. This is a little bit different in that Pulisic played well on the whole, but it's it's those moments where he could have been the difference maker but wasn't. And the, that's the only thing that feels like a little bit of a letdown. But the important thing is, is that, you know, we talked about in the buildup, you got two games in a row, and you thought, ah, oh, maybe he'll be rested. You mentioned there are extenuating circumstances, but he's playing well. He's playing often for Chelsea right now, who admittedly are not having the best run into the season. But Pulisic is at the very least doing his part. You know, in Liverpool, there's going to be concern now because of potential injuries here. And you talked about players being tired. Liverpool is going to play the maximum number of games they could have played the entire season by making the finals of the Champions League, the League Cup, and the FA Cup. And it's a lot. And so we saw Mohamed Salah go off in the first half with what sounds like a groin issue. Uh, Virgil van Dijk, who never comes off, came off. Wasn't sure how serious it was, but he still came off. Um, and then Andy Robertson looked like he cramped up maybe uh, late in the game, uh, which is understandable when you go 120 minutes uh, in a game. But that's kind of worrisome for Liverpool fans, I, I would think. Yeah, and it's interesting because uh, you, you're talking about playing a maximum number of games. Um, I'm looking it up right now just in terms of raw minutes played. Allison leads the team. He's played 4,600 minutes this season, having started in 51 games. There are three players who have played more than 4,000 minutes and 10 players who have played at least 3,000 minutes. The average, like I think of it like in MLS terms, like the like the most an MLS player can play is like just over 3,000 regular season minutes. So it's extraordinary the amount of football these guys have played. And if Van Dijk is out for any period of time, that's a big problem. And you would have said that before about Mo Salah, but Luis Diaz is playing well enough and they brought Diogo Jota into this game, I don't think it's a killer, especially with three games to go. The one thing that will be interesting is that now because of Manchester City drawing, and we'll get to that in a moment, there is a real opportunity for them, and they're not only going to want to win on Tuesday, but they're away at Southampton, who are known for taking lopsided victories. <laughs> Nine so, nil, baby. <laughs> right, so you're going to want to put together a big performance and a big uh, outcome, but... It's really hard to turn around on three days rest. I don't know what the travel situation was. If they went back to Liverpool and they'll have to go back down to the south coast of England and, and get a result there. Maybe Southampton will be up for that game because we know that there's kind of like two polar opposites of Southampton. It's either lose 9-0 or give you the most difficult game of your season in, in, inexplicably. So I do think that that could be a really difficult game for Liverpool. So I, I do think that potentially these injuries, that exhaustion could cause them to slip up in the league and give Man City a reprieve that maybe they don't deserve after this weekend's performance. Well, overall, though, a very good weekend for Liverpool when you look at winning the FA Cup final and City drops points with the tie at West Ham. And, you know, this was a wild game when, when you watched it because 2-0 West Ham at one point, uh, it looks like, wow, you know, City's in danger of, of losing a game here, and that would throw everything just totally wide open in the league race. And 
they came back. You know, give them credit for for the comeback. And they put a lot of pressure on West Ham, got a couple of goals, and then had a penalty to basically win the game. And the save is made on Mares by Fabianski. And, and uh, just a huge dramatic moment um, in which if, if he converts that penalty and City wins the game due to the goal difference situation, that basically would have been it. Yeah, and it's really frustrating from you know my point of view that Riyad Mahrez takes that penalty. He's taken some spectacular penalties, but he's also come up short in big moments as well. I think most particularly of an away match at Anfield where a Mahrez penalty would have won them a game at Anfield, the illustrious win at Anfield, and he and he skied it into Rose Z. So, uh, you know, I, I don't love it when Mahrez steps over the penalty spot in those moments. Jesus is on such good form. You have Kevin De Bruyne on the field. It just feels... Wrong in a way to have Mares take those, and then he goes and has it saved, and that's a huge let off because I don't think Man City were particularly poor in this game. I thought at times they showed some cutting edge, even when you know, even in the first half when it didn't seem like it. I thought they were playing a reasonably good game, and then West Ham really take advantage of the fact that Man City are you know despite all the incredible signings that they've made with the incredible 2D that they have. They're out so many center backs right now that they're playing Fernandinho back there. And he got exposed again and again, in my opinion. Mikel Antonio was the perfect center forward to come up against this team, caused them so many problems. And then when you have a player like Jared Bowen as that kind of second banana, that second guy that can, you know, really offer a different proposition, can profit off those long balls, can profit off the work that Mikel Antonio is doing. He really terrorized Manchester City today. And I think a combination of him and Alexander Zinchenko, I, I just don't think they're strong enough players in, in defensive positions to give Manchester City the opportunities that they want later on in the season when you're playing them away from home in the Champions League against Real Madrid, when you're playing them in must-win games against difficult teams, as much as West Ham have at times struggled throughout the season, they're going to finish in the top six ahead of Manchester United. And you'd imagine that like, this is a really difficult team to play away from home, as tired as they must be from their Europa League campaign. It's a difficult team to play, but they couldn't do enough. Manchester City get all, all the way turned around. It's a good moment for Jack Grealish to get a goal because he's had some rough moments at times. His real first big contribution, I'd say, for Manchester City since joining the club. But it wasn't enough for a win. And so now you have to beat Aston Villa on the final day. And you'd imagine there's some kind of mythical element of Danny Ings, Philippe Coutinho, Steven Gerrard, all former Liverpool figures who will be managing or playing for Aston Villa on the day and would love to go to the Etihad and play spoiler. Really looking forward to it. Glad that it looks like there is going to be drama on the last day. It's still going to be up in the air. Kind of do need Liverpool to win at Southampton on Tuesday, though. And let's look at the bottom of the league in the relegation battle because Leeds once again gets a stoppage time goal that was absolutely necessary just to get a tie though just to get a point at home against Brighton and so now Burnley loses it's Burnley back in the relegation zone Leeds one point out of it but Leeds has played one more game and so that's going to be uh, a challenging situation here for Jesse Marsh and Leeds. I felt like they really, really wanted to get three points today. And that, you know, getting a point was better than 
losing, but I, I do wonder if it's going to be enough. I, I do think that you look at the team that Leeds have left and they were pretty soundly outplayed by Brighton for most of the opening hour. And then Leeds, because they were behind, because they're in the relegation scrap, had their moments and they were able to get forward and create good transition moments and Rafinha had his chances. But in the end, Leeds are short right now. They're short of players. They basically have 12 senior fit outfield players. If you include players like Sam Greenwood and Jamie Shackleton in that picture, but they just have so many injuries on top of an already fairly thin squad. They're playing Joe Gelhart up top in huge games, and I just don't think that they have enough. Now, this point was huge, and it was probably deserved off the back of what they put in to that second half, but they're going to have to, at some point probably, get a win, which will only come with their one game they have left away at Brentford, because Burnley are at Aston Villa and home with Newcastle. And those are tough games. But I don't think if you're Leeds, you can bank on Burnley losing them both. You're going to have to get something. Maybe just the one point will do away at Brentford, who put in a really good performance today, despite the fact that they didn't need to against Everton after they went down to 10 and eventually nine men. But Leeds fighting to get that point. Every point at this point of the season is massive, but they probably needed a win today and were pretty soundly outplayed in that first half. Frankly, a bit fortunate that they weren't out of sight uh, a little bit earlier, but they're still in it. They're still above the... I think any night that you finish in 17th in the predicament that Leeds are in is a good night, but uh, they're going to need some help in midweek from Aston Villa and then eventually from Newcastle. Interesting how much of a role Aston Villa playing in these last yeah. couple of match days. Them and Newcastle, um, because uh, Newcastle, I think, have uh, a game that figures in the top four race as well. I believe they play Arsenal either mm-hmm. uh, in midweek or at, at some point. And, and, and it's uh, tomorrow or today, I guess, when we release this. Uh, but today they play Arsenal. So they figure in the top four race and the relegation race. So the coolest scene of the weekend, I thought, was in Stuttgart, where Stuttgart stays up in the Bundesliga with five minutes to go, and all these games on the final day of the season are taking place at the same time. With five minutes to go, Stuttgart needed a goal to be scored by Dortmund against Hertha Berlin, and needed Stuttgart to get a goal in their own game. Both things happened. And you just love moments like this in this sport. It's, it's one of the things that makes this sport so great. And to see the American coach, coach of Stuttgart, Pellegrino Matarazzo, celebrating with his players when they got the goal, that was so freaking cool. And, and just uh, a really special moment. And congrats to Stuttgart, because it looked like they were going to be either totally relegated at one point or at least, the very least, going to the relegation playoff, which now Hertha Berlin is is in. Um, and and now they're safe. Yeah, and you, you don't want to be in that relegation playoff. That relegation playoff uh, is an absolute just torture chamber when you think of you know what it's done to teams in the past. Uh, the, the, the team that goes, which is Hertha Berlin, will have to play Hamburg, who have won five in a row in the two Bundesliga. So you don't want to be in that game. And... What a cool scene that was because, you know, I, I, I'll be honest, I wasn't like, I need to be glued to the final day of the Bundesliga, even though it would have been really cool if Union Berlin made the Champions League. I saw they only missed it by just the one point. But either way, you know, like that scene where Pellegrino Matarazzo, you actually see him, if you rewatch the clip, 
he's basically halfway down the touchline <laughs> by the time the cross gets put in, and he's almost first to celebrate <laughs> with the goal scorer because he's that far run down the field, the entire stadium going nuts. Those are the days you go, man, what a cool sport. What a, what a cool system. Only in, in, in leagues where they have relegation do you get these sorts of moments. If you were to start a if you were to start a sport from scratch, you would never suggest the idea of relegation because it's kind of ridiculous. But it's the best. It's the best. There's a reason why American fans create bot Twitter accounts to spam the mentions of sports writers and executives for relegation because it is freaking cool, man. That was awesome. What a great weekend and and the clip that goes viral. If you're watching on ESPN, it was live on ESPN, uh, which is really cool. Whip around coverage with K Murray and the team. It was tremendous. So Stuttgart are staying in the division, and what a late goalie. Well, anytime you get a goalkeeper forward situation to stay in the league, that's the good stuff. Yeah, and I kind of like the fact that so many fans were able to rush the field, and that's something you almost never see in the modern game because there's so much security usually. But you used to see it a lot back in. I remember watching the Maradona film on HBO about how often fans would be coming onto the field at like the ends of big games and and being like oh you don't really see that anymore but you saw it this weekend in stuttgart where there were so many fans on the field players were celebrating with them they're playing paradise city from guns and roses on the pa it was <laughs> one of those things you just wish you could have been there but it was great to be able to see it in real time on television and then i'm gonna try and get pellegrino Matarazzo back on the show we'll see if we can uh do that because i think uh it would be fun to hear his story about how he lived that whole thing um one other thing i want to talk about is the italian Serie A race is going to go to the final day because milan and inter hold serve and win on sunday and now milan is up two points on inter but milan is at sassuolo for the final day and inter is home against sampdoria so there's going to be a challenge there for Milan because Inter has goal difference advantage, by the way, and, and they can't be caught. So you feel like Inter is going to take care of business at home against Sampdoria, which would mean Milan is going to need a win because a tie would likely not would not be good enough uh, given the goal difference situation. But then again, you'd rather be Milan in this in this uh, the way things are are. And, and Rafael Leao has just been unbelievable for Milan the last few games is they've really needed some big performances and uh, the young Portuguese is doing it, doing the business. And scored a great goal today uh, underneath the goalkeeper. It was a great finish at the end of a great move. And Milan have shown their medal here. They've shown that, you know, I think this Serie A title race was mostly defined until this last month by when the top teams would slip up and when the top teams, you know, wouldn't put together the performances that they needed to between Inter and AC Milan. They haven't done a good enough job to put the title race away. But then AC Milan have won their last five in the league. They did lose in the Coppa Italia final, or semifinal rather, to Inter. But they beat Genoa. They beat Lazio away. They beat Fiorentina at home, Verona away, and now Atalanta at home. And today's performance was great. The San Siro was bouncing. It just kind of had a feel of a team that was going to get over the line. There might have been a little bit of over-celebration. I do think that the Milan fans did owe it to their fans to celebrate what's been a really good season in their final home game, looking for their first league title in 11 years. 
And it's great to see such a big club and that San Siro bouncing again because I feel like since I really started following soccer, watching games at the San Siro has almost been kind of sad at times. Like they're trying to rekindle something that doesn't exist anymore. They've gone through so many dark years. And the fact that now they're uh, on the doorstep of winning a league title again, it's really cool. But it's not done. Away at Sassuolo is not a guaranteed point win so they're going to have to probably win on this final day, and it's going to be a tough challenge. Can't wait to watch the final day in Italy. Yeah, no, it's going to be great. And this time of year is just so much fun. Even yesterday I was watching uh, Boca Racing down in uh, Argentina in the semifinal of their tournament, and they went straight to penalties after 90 minutes, which I don't know how I feel about that. You don't have to deal with like the the cramping up that you see in extra time uh, and some of these other things, but Boca ends up winning in round seven on that. And just this time of year, there's so many big games around the world that um, I look forward to it. I really do. And it's going to be, you know, kind of a bummer once the European season's over. I, I, I always have this sense of emptiness, you know? <laughs> yeah. It, and it's interesting. This summer is pretty light, uh, which it really has has gotten me thinking that I I just get this feeling that this, that this World Cup is going to be great. I really do, and I know that like it's kind of crappy to talk about it in those terms because it's you know it's in Qatar. It was moved for bad reasons, but I can't remember a summer that had this little men's football going on, where there aren't right. there aren't many international tournaments. There aren't you know things that are you know dragging the calendar around. You'll have a proper preseason, a proper vacation for everybody, right? I mean, this the season ends at the end of May. There's some internationals after. We'll have the the World Cup playoffs, um, and then some some Nations League and some some uh, uh, confederations around the world, and then everyone gets a break, which. It's kind of weird that soccer fans are yearning to not have a break because in every other sport, there's at least like a two or three month break. And it's like, oh, these three weeks are going to be insufferable without any soccer going on. But it's great for the players. I think it's going to be great for the product at the end of what's been basically two straight years of football. When you go back to the restart from the pandemic all the way until now, most teams, most countries, most players have not had a break in the 21 months that have followed. So as as great as this running is, and you're starting to see the end of it and starting to get sad by it, I think it's ultimately going to be good for the game and ultimately good for this World Cup that's coming up in the fall. Yeah, I totally agree with you on that. Uh, and, you know, this summer, the biggest events are basically the Women's Euros and yeah. the Women's World Cup qualifying in CONCACAF. So um, I, I do like that they're going to get... I think a fair amount of attention because of that, maybe more than they would otherwise. But yeah, soccer never really stops, does it? <laughs> yeah, and you, we'll, we'll always have Fabrizio Romano to keep us interested. <laughs> the one thing I will say as it relates to the World Cup, uh, uh, a friend of mine, Mike Ryan uh, from from the Levitard Show, he asked me for the for the first time to see if he can if I can put together a schedule that marries all of the games that will be happening during the World Cup group stage uh, with all of the games that are happening in the NFL. And it's remarkable when you look at like the first NFL Sunday, there'll be either a World Cup or an NFL game to watch from 5 a.m. Eastern until 11.30 p.m. Eastern. So uh, you're, if you have to make those decisions about which sport you support, Thanksgiving Day is going to be unbelievable as well uh, if you're a fan of both of these sports. Uh, the, the fall from a sports perspective is shaping up to be extraordinary in that you've never had a World Cup tossed into it before. I'm just glad you didn't say schedule a second ago. <laughs> yeah. The two that I don't do as much as I love 
being an Anglophile and and uh, culturally appropriating is uh, is I don't do schedule. And I also like I don't think the aluminium thing is real. I, I I'm convinced that nobody actually says aluminium. That's just a meme. As always, thanks, Chris. Thanks, Grant. Now here's my interview with Daniel Laddick. Our guest now is Daniel Laddick. We're Dr. Dano to his students at Seton Hall. He's an associate professor of marketing and a methodologist for the Seton Hall Sports Poll at the Stillman School of Business at Seton Hall University, where he's been for the last 11 years. Dano, it's great to talk to you. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, Grant. Long-time listener, first-time caller. <laughs> I'm really excited about this because we're going to talk about some new polling that you just did and have been doing on soccer uh, in the U.S., uh, scientific polling uh, ahead of the World Cup later this year in Qatar. But before we get into some details on that, I just want to start off by asking, what is the Seton Hall Sports Poll? The Seton Hall Sports Poll uh, is a lab. In the Stillman School of Business, our mission is what we call concepts into practice, which means bringing the real world into the classroom and on campus. So every one of the majors in the Stillman School has a lab. The finance department has an incredible trading room. The marketing department has a focus group room with two-way mirrors for the marketing research class. And the sports management majors has the Seton Hall Sports Poll under the direction of Charlie Grantham, who's the former executive director of the NBA Players Association. Interesting. And you have a soccer connection as well. You're a soccer guy. Could you explain a little bit about your soccer story? I grew up playing soccer, played soccer in high school picked my college and I decided to call the coach. Hey, can I try to walk on? And he was like, okay. I did make it as a walk on at St. Joseph's University. Didn't play very much. Um, I was young and inexperienced, loved to play. Did not know that one of the assistant coaches was Walter Barr of the <laughs> 1950 World Cup fame that beat England. We weren't even playing in World Cups at that time. It was so long ago. <laughs> My freshman year, we played against All-American Alexi Lalas, who was a junior at the time. And yes, Rutgers beat us very well, 4-1, in which he scored a goal. <laughs> he was very good then, too. Um, but I've stayed with the game. Super ecstatic that the game is so prominent now in the U.S. Um, a big fan of the European soccer in addition to the U.S. And my favorite team is Marseille. I've been to 11 games and no, 14 games in the Velodrome. Nice. I mean, that's fantastic. One of the great soccer cities in the world. Uh, I haven't been there, unfortunately, since the 98 World Cup, and they've totally redone the stadium since then to uh, modernize it a bit. So I'm hoping to get back there before too long. But uh, I, I find what you do fascinating and really appreciate not too long ago, you contacted me and you were about to do another edition of your sports poll looking at the World Cup and soccer in the United States. And um, it was fun for me to have a, a little bit of influence with suggesting some potential questions. But uh, let's get into a little bit what you've been doing you know, with this, this month's new polling and, and over the last couple of polls. Well, in March of this year, we did poll number four for the year. And I was very curious because the U.S. men's national team was on the verge of qualifying for the World Cup. We 
you know, they had three games left. This was before the cycle for that last, the games 14, 13, and 12 that week. So we pulled the week before that. We knew that they were probably going to get in, but, you know. Well, I wanted to get a baseline number to see where the general population in the United States thought about the U.S. men's national team. And then also sports fans in advance of the excitement level that we're probably going to see in November. Okay. So we asked the question, the men's national team are about to qualify. Are you excited or interested in the World Cup in 2022? And then we asked it in May again and changed the question to the team qualified. And we had a nine point jump between March and May between people more interested in watching the World Cup after the men, the team qualified. Let me give you the exact numbers here. So in the general population number was 21% in March. It's up to 25 in May amongst sports fans, 34 to 39 amongst avid fans. It was 49 to 58%. So almost a nine point job. So pretty significant. I mean, I mean, and these numbers, like this is a scientific poll run the same way that political polls are run, correct? That is absolutely correct. When we say it's a poll, we sampled over 1,500 people in the United States of America, regardless of whether they were a sports fan or not sports fan. They are randomly assigned. In addition, the sample mirrors the U.S. census percentages for the U.S. for age, gender, income, education, ethnicity, and region. So, all continuous 48 states are in the sample. It is 51% female and 49% male because that's what the U.S. Census numbers, you know, through all the demographics. What were some of the, the things that stood out to you, I guess, the most in this poll about soccer um, in addition to what we've already discussed? I thought one fun fact was we asked in the May poll the Ukrainians men's national team are also close to qualifying. If they do qualify, and they would be in the group with the U.S. men's national team, would you be more interested in watching the World Cup in the fall? And their numbers were the exact same as the U.S. men's national team numbers. You know, general population, 28%, sports fans at 40%, and avid fans at 57%. I mean, they're almost exactly dead on. That's really interesting. And and it if it happens, and we'll find out in early June because the Ukraine team is going to play against Scotland. And if they win that against Wales, so one of those three teams is going to be the U.S.'s opponent on the first day of the World Cup. And I just figured that there's so much interest in Ukraine because of obviously the tragic stuff that's happening with the invasion of their country by Russia that... Um, I kind of think if Ukraine gets to the World Cup, they'd be everyone globally their second favorite team. And it would be a really interesting sporting challenge uh, for the United States in that uh, if that were to happen. But um, on a related note to this theme, we asked if the U.S. population supported FIFA's ban of Russia in the World Cup. And yes, they did. General population was at 53%, sports fans at 62%, avid fans at also 63%. So pretty much the over majority said, yeah, 
were with FIFA here, they needed to be banned. And then one thing that I, I may have mentioned this to you as something I was interested in was how people in the United States view FIFA as an organization. Um, and maybe a lot of that's tied to the 2015 U.S. government indictments that became a huge story and caused so many members of FIFA to uh, go to court, to be convicted, to plead guilty, caused Seth Blatter to resign as FIFA president. But what was your it sense? Started of from, yeah, that started from investigations here in the United States. Yeah. What, what, what was your finding on that? How do, how do Americans view FIFA as an organization? Well, the Seton Hall sports poll tends to query on three main areas. And ethics and sports is one of the biggest areas we query on, in addition to business and sports and culture and sports. So the idea of asking if FIFA is an ethically centered organization fits perfectly with us. I'm very surprised by these numbers. Um, they're a lot higher than I expected them. So the general population was 22% yes, that FIFA is ethical. <laughs> Sports fans, 32%, and avid fans, 48%. That means half of sports fans in the polls said, oh, sure, FIFA is an ethically centered organization. <laughs> and you and I both know that that is not the case. I mean, we, should, sure we, should that... call, we should call Philippe Beauclair right now and <laughs> see him roll over on these numbers, to be honest with you. It's pretty funny. Maybe FIFA president Johnny Infantino will want to hear that. Um, so slightly surprising there. And then um, there was a question about for Americans about Qatar as a World Cup host and questions about human rights with Qatar and how people in the U.S. feel about that. What did you find there? So as pollsters, we have to be careful not to overly bias the question. Right. You know, there has been a number of journalistic investigations over the past six, eight, ten years on what's happening in Qatar related to them getting ready for the World Cup. Um, some really damning stories and tragic stories. Um, I don't know if we want to go into those now or not. But we worded the question very benignly. Qatar, a country accused of human rights violations, including providing low pay and dangerous working conditions. We did not say anything about deaths related to people working on the stadiums or the infrastructure or all the other accusations, you know, this was a very benign question. So we asked them, you knowing about these human rights violations, does this reduce your interest in the World Cup? And they were 41% of the general population said yes. 51% of sports fans said yes. And 63% of avid fans said yes. I mean, this is, this is a hard thing. This is the most watched sport event in the world. And we know how challenging the human rights situation. Do we do we not watch? You know, this is a tough thing for a fan. We know it reduces our interest, but we're probably still going to watch. It is interesting, and and I think everyone who likes to watch the World Cup or work in the World Cup or cover it as a journalist like me is asking themselves to some extent how to approach how they want to approach all of this. And, you know, what I've decided as a journalist is I am going to go to Qatar and I am going to cover the tournament as I've covered previous World Cups. But I also went to Qatar 
in early March and did some journalism, which I'm going to publish on my site soon here. I already have published some. Um, and I just went around speaking to migrant workers because I know that I won't have the time being busy covering soccer in November and December to do that type of thing then. So I made sure to do it now. And I, I feel like for me, that's how I wanted to approach it. But I, I, I do find it interesting based on what you're telling me from the poll that this, that while Americans maybe have a higher, slightly higher opinion of FIFA than we would have expected, that they are very aware of the human rights concerns about Qatar. I think what's going to happen when we ask these exact same questions again in November, where journalists like yourself and media outlets start talking more about FIFA and start talking more about Qatar, that I'm expecting to see these numbers to be more aligned with what they should be. I mean, okay. Within the soccer community, we've been talking about this for a very long time, basically since Qatar was awarded the cup. God knows how they were awarded the cup, but they were awarded the cup. Right. And another thing that I thought would be interesting to ask about is viewing habits, because soccer in particular in the United States over the last couple of years has become a streaming sport for viewing. Not entirely, and there's still games that take place on cable only, and there's still games occasionally that take place on free over-the-air television. But more and more, it's on streaming. And yeah. Yeah. I, I've been interested just in wondering how many Americans are actually doing streaming for soccer and interested in what percentage and and you got some information on that. So what we did is in one question, we asked what their level of soccer fandom was. So 43% of the sample had some level of soccer interest. So that way I was able to ask specific soccer questions to that subset of 41% that are interested in soccer. Okay. So that leaves us with 730 respondents in the sample. And then we asked of that soccer fandom, how many of you are paying for something extra to watch soccer? And 42% of them said they were, and 50% of avid, no, 50% of sports fans and 71% of avid fans were like, oh yeah, I'm paying for something over and above just to watch soccer. Which given how much soccer we have on regular over-the-air TV or cable TV, and they're still paying for something else. I think that is impressive. Diehard fans here. Yeah, no, that is really interesting. It kind of fits in a little bit with the overall number of Americans interested in watching professional soccer has grown over the years. But like, it's always seemed to me that the level of passion within the soccer fan base in the U.S. is extremely high. <laughs> and they're willing to go out of their way sometimes to, to consume the sport. It really is. As a matter of fact, that was also a question that we devised uh, together. And the, the fandom, these individuals that said that we are soccer fans, we then asked them which, which leagues do they follow or which parts of the world they follow the most. The... U.S. leagues were the most popular at 50%, with European being also at 41%. But Mexico was at 
23%, really high. And I was surprised that the South American leagues were also at 23%. Um, the, the lowest percentages were the Asian leagues and the African leagues at 14 and 16% respectively. So how should we take that finding? And so I, I generally, when I see the television ratings and the audiences in the United States, the Mexican men's national team is the most popular soccer team in the United States. If you look at number of television watchers, Liga MX is the most popular domestic league on television in the United States. Now, most of that is on Spanish language television, but it's in the U.S. obviously and very popular. Yep. Um, mm -hmm. Does that coincide with what you're finding in your poll? Well. The poll, remember, is a balanced representative sample. It's not a sample of only soccer fans. So if we were to do a poll with your viewership, or if we were to do a poll of just soccer fans in the United States, we would see numbers that would align with what we're seeing with Spanish language soccer watching, in addition to English language soccer watching. But if we were to do a general poll of the United States, we would see subsets because I only have so many Spanish speakers in the sample here. And so moving forward this year, how many times are you going to be able to sort of do different additional polling on some of these topics before the World Cup? Um, we're at the end of our academic year, and this is our last poll for the academic year. And I really am thankful that you were able to partner with me a little bit here to frame some of these questions, because I'm really excited. Our next poll is probably be early November, probably two weeks before the World Cup. And that poll will almost be exclusively World Cup questions. But a lot of those World Cup questions will be ones that we framed and got a baseline number for in May. So I'm super excited to see what we're going to have in November to see how these numbers change. And I have a feeling they're going to go up and they're going to go up considerably. Everybody's going to be excited for the World Cup. Even <laughs> casual fans watch the World Cup. Well, I'm obviously very fired up for it. Uh, and the months I think are going to go by quickly. It's going to be good to see the U.S. men in a World Cup again. And let's, uh, let's try and reconnect in November then and, and and see how people are viewing things uh, in the u.s closer to the world cup i really appreciate that i would be happy to do it daniel laddick dr dano to his students is an associate professor of marketing and a methodologist for the seton hall sports poll at the stillman school of business at seton hall university thanks so much for coming on the show thanks grant Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank Daniel Laddick, as well as producer and pundit Chris Whittingham. You can now sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. The best way to support my work is by taking out a paid subscription. See you next time.